Welcome to the Gingsberg Podcast. After today's message, take a sec and download the Gingsberg app. It's the best way to find out about and engage with what's happening at Gingsberg. We hope the following message helps you activate your faith and take the next step with your journey with Jesus. Hey, good morning, church family. Good morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. Welcome. Good morning. I've been looking. Thank you. Good morning online. It's good to have you with us today. I'm Pastor Dennis, and what a joy it is. I've been looking all week for this time, and I'm looking around here, and I'm seeing some of you, and I'm just thanking God as I'm listening to that psalm because I'm realizing that many of you are miracles. One person I just saw was in the hospital yesterday and is here today, amen? And so praise God. <laughs> praise God for his promises. And I want to thank you for all your prayers. Yesterday was spectacular as we were sharing the love of Jesus in the Tip City Mum Festival Parade. Thank you for those who walked and also thank you for those who were on the sidelines cheering as we'd walk by. It was so encouraging as we shared the love of Jesus. If you haven't figured it out yet, this place is about Jesus. Jesus, the living word. We learn about Jesus not only through our experience, but we learn about Jesus through the written word. And that's what we're looking at today, the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to get your Bible ready. We're going to be looking at several scriptures. I have my Bible on my iPad today, and so I'm going to be reading that to you. We're asking the question in this series entitled, Tough Questions, Can I Trust the Bible? And that's an important question because we just gave that Bible to our first graders. We don't want to lead them astray, right? We want them to grow up and know the true living God of the universe. And so we hand them that Bible. Can we trust that? Is the Bible true? Is, is it reliable? Is it relevant for us in the 21st century? That's a question. Now, hands down, the Bible is the most translated book of all times. That's really not an argument. It is the most translated book of history. Homer has been translated into 40 different languages. Shakespeare has been translated into about 60 languages. But the Bible has been translated, get this, into well over 2,000 languages. Not only is the Bible the most translated book of all times, but it is the most um, printed book of all times. It's the greatest selling book of all times. Every single year, millions and millions of Bibles are sold. In fact, I, I had a number for you. Let's go ahead and share this. I didn't share it in the first verse. I had a number for you, and I, I, I had this number down, and then I Googled that question. You can do that right now, see what you get, and it was a lot higher. It said 100 million Bibles a year. Just blew me away. And then this morning I did, it was about 40 or 50 million a year. So I don't know what it is, but I want to say a lot. <laughs> Here, here's what I do know. That every single week, the New York Times eliminates the Bible from its best-selling list. You know, the New York Times best-selling list. Because if they did not, it, the Bible would always be every single week at the top. It is estimated that on planet Earth, there are approximately 6 million Bibles that are printed. A few of you have more than one at home. 
around in different places of your home. Bibles, Bibles everywhere. But what about the Bible? Is it true? What's it about? Is it a good source of history? Well, you you need to know that it is history, but it doesn't contain all history. The Bible's purpose is not informational, it's transformational. As a person of faith, I believe it's a living book. And what I mean by it doesn't contain all history, I mean, let's be honest, it doesn't tell us in detail the origins of the Chinese people, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose of the Bible was that God entered into history, revealed himself first through a group of people, the Hebrew people, through Abraham's descendants, to fully reveal himself to the world in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of the world. Some people look at it in different ways, incorrectly. It's not a science book. We talked about that last week. There's some science in it, but that's not the purpose. If you have questions about science, first of all, go back to last week in our domain channel, and you can begin to at least... uh, unpack the whole subject that we dealt with last week. Is there a conflict between faith and science? We, we said, no, they run parallel to one another. Science attempts to address the question, how? Faith addresses the question, who and why? So the purpose of this book is relationship. The purpose of this book is to help us to uncover the true God of creation. That's what the Bible says about itself. In fact, now, if you have that Bible or you have Bible on your phone or iPad or at home, go ahead and look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. And Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. Now listen to this, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So he says the very purpose of this book, these words are written so you might believe. Later, John says, and there are so many other things that Jesus did that's not recorded in this book, but I'm giving you these things right here. So you can believe. The purpose of this book is to do what? It's not informational. It's transformational. It's to help you to encounter God. But what you need to know, even though that it doesn't contain all history, what's in it is good history. Now, last week I said, I'm not a scientist. I'm a theologian. I'm a pastor. I'm a historian. History is my major, my background in school, okay? Skeptics have said the Bible is a collection of bad history. It's a collection of fairy tales or fables or fiction. Was that true? What is bad history? I like this definition from historian of bad history. Bad history is anything, any account of actual events that plays loose with dates and places and place and storylines and people. So let me give you some examples of bad history. Okay, I'll give you four statements. Are you ready? Number one, Barack Obama was elected the first African-American president of the U.S. 
1998. Now, why is that bad history? And if you don't know that, you're bad students. <laughs> well, yes, he was the first African-American president of the United States, but the date's wrong. It wasn't 1998, it was 2008. Good history pays attention to the dates and gets them right. Okay, here's another statement. The American Civil War was a bloody conflict fought in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> well, it's obvious why that's wrong, right? The place is wrong. The geography's wrong. Where was the Civil War fought? Primarily in Pennsylvania, in Maryland, Virginia, parts of the South, and some in the Appalachian Mountains. Good history pays attention to the places that the events occurred, and they get them right. Number three, on November 19th, 1863, President Ronald Reagan delivered the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> well, it's obvious why that's wrong, right? Who delivered the Gettysburg Address, students? Abraham Lincoln. Okay. So good history pays attention to people facts and gets them right. One more just for fun. Here's one. Joe Burrow played football for LSU in 2019, but his performance on the field was terrible. <laughs> or we'll say lackluster. Well, the date's right. That was the season. The place, yes, he did transfer down to LSU. The person we're talking about, yeah, Burrow, that's right. But the whole storyline is long, a little lackluster or worse, terrible? Come on. I mean, he, he, he led. He led the, the college football in scoring that year in most touchdowns. In fact, he received the Heisman Trophy, the Maxwell Award, the Johnny Unitas Golden Arm Award, the Manning Award, the Lombardi Award, the AP College Football Player of the Year. He led LSU to a national championship, a little lackluster. Don't you think even if you're a Browns fan, you got to give the guy a little bit of credit? <laughs> uh, oh, he's the highest paid quarterback. Yeah, okay. I hope he's listening to this. We're always opening to his charity. <laughs> All right, okay. All this to say is that good history pays attention to people facts, to storylines, to places, and events, and gets it right. Years back in December 2005, the then president of Iran made a startling statement that was reported by CNN and other news networks that said the Holocaust during World War II didn't happen. It was actually just made up by the West for propaganda purposes. And millions of people in his influence believed him. Let me just say, that's bad history, folks. Now, you ask the question, first of all, well, how do you know? 90% you, of our church was not born during World War II, unless you're nearly 80 years old or when those times take place. We have a few, but most of us, including the preacher, we were born after the fact. We weren't there. We weren't in Poland. We, we didn't see it with our own eyes. How do we know? Especially when there are people saying that was all made up for propaganda purposes. Well, we do know. 
We do know because of the eyewitness accounts. Some of those people are still living today, although many are gone, but they gave a record. We do know because the overwhelming evidence of the testimony of that time, of the witnesses, as well as the documentation, and we can actually go to the places and to the camps and other places. We, we do know because it was rooted and grounded in reality. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you making connections? Are you connecting the dots? What I want to say to you is that the New Testament is good history because it pays attention to people facts. It pays attention to dates and places and storylines and attempts to get them right. It makes that claim itself. Dr. Luke is explaining this in his first chapter. In Luke chapter 1, if you look at your Bibles, verses 1 to 4. And he writes this as he begins his account of what happened with Jesus. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. No, he says, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, O most honorable Theopolis, so you can be certain, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. He makes the claim that this is done through investigation, it's done through research, it's done through eyewitnesses. Now, Peter later writing about this evidence, says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. For we have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. We've experienced this. We, we know it's true. What he's also saying is if you don't believe me, just walk down the street to the 500 other witnesses, many who later gave their lives to say, I believe this actually happened. William Lane Craig, a professor at Biola University, thinks it's high time the scripture writers of the New Testament get their due. He says this, quote, each city, town, and village that Luke mentions squares exactly with the record of secular history. I'm amazed at Luke's grasp of government as he cites the official names of governmental officials of his day. It would have been very pretty easy to get at least one of those wrong. Luke gets every single one of them exactly right. Luke gets it right when he describes terrain, rivers, mountains, valleys, wells, buildings, city, and even the coinage of his day. It all squares with other historical references every single Word. In short, William Lane Craig says, there's no bad history going on here. In about four or five months, we're going to be going from our church, a group of 20 to 30 of us, to the Holy Land. We're not going to a never-never land out of a fictional book. We're going to a real place where Jesus walked. We're going to stand by a real Sea of Galilee. We're going to visit the ruins through the archaeological digs of Capernaum and Bethsaida and places where Jesus taught and Jesus lived. We're going to stand on the real Mount of Olives and we're going to tell the story of a time that Jesus stood right here and he looked down on the Kinron Valley as we look down on the Kinron Valley. We're going to 
across the Jordan River. We're going to experience those times as we walk to Bethlehem. All those real life places. That doesn't lead anyone to saving faith. But it says that this book is rooted in a real life and reality. What's important is that we have to understand the scripture. We have to understand its purpose. We don't worship the scripture. I'm going to say that again because some of you now are going to have to pause and I want you to really think this through. We don't worship the Bible. If we began to worship the Bible, then it would be an idol to the Lord. An idol is something that could even be of creation, but we start to, we start to worship it. We worship the God of the Bible, right? We, we worship the living word, not the written word. The Bible points us to Jesus. It tells us who Jesus really is. And so we, we don't worship it. That's not the purpose, and we'll miss the purpose. There may be a few that's upset that I'm not holding this book rather than this book when both the tablet and this leather bound with paper has the entire Bible that I'm reading, even though that I'm reading the words. Now, I want you to know before you dismiss me that I believe the whole Bible. I even believe the leather's genuine. That was a joke, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But the Bible, the written word are the words. Whether we read them off the screen, whether we read them from some leather, or whether we read those words here. But we don't worship and make that an idol. We get to know the purpose, the living word, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And so what we do as students of the Bible is that we never check our brains at the door of the church or the home. God gave us a mind, we learned that last week. And we try to understand the Bible. I love this little saying, maybe it'll be helpful for you, it's helpful for me. We never explain the Bible away, like that doesn't matter. We explain the scripture, not explain it away. We explain the scripture. So we have to understand why it was written. What was the purpose of that writing, that letter? Who was the original audience? Why was Paul or others writing to that person? So what is the Bible? It's actually not one book, but it's a collection of books. Written not in one year, but over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Fishermen, kings, princes, poets, Philosophers, scholars, religious leaders, historians, doctors, even a tax collector, right? And the Bible isn't all the same. It's not all history. It's not just a history book. If if you know the Bible, what's in there? There's history. There's also poetry. There's uh, literature. Some of the words are written Directly for allegory, that was the purpose of the writer. They draw you to another picture, right? Prophecy, there are letters written to some churches, early churches. We get the privilege of reading those letters and they do apply to us directly, but they're really indirectly because we're not the original audience. 
And there are all kinds of forms of writing. Again, over 1,500 years. The Bible is 100% written by humans and 100% inspired by God. I'm gonna say that again. It's a, you can't take that away. You see their personality. You, you, you see some of them wrote it in Hebrew, others in Greek or, or other texts, right? So it wasn't like they were just in some hidden room somewhere and they just said, okay, God, now I'll put my pen here and you just direct this. Their mind was inspired. The, the actual scripture that we get this from says inspire, but the Greek means God breathed. They, they were inspired. So although it's human, it's also fully divine. And it has the power to transform. It has the power to, it's really the Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and minds. And it contains all things necessary for salvation. I remember uh, standing before 2,000 church leaders many years ago, but we're nation. And I was asked by the bishop, do you believe this book? Will you teach this book? Do you believe it contains all things necessary for salvation? I said, yes, I do, and I will. And has the power to do that. That doesn't mean that there's no difficulties in the Bible. There's tons. I've been studying this book for really 45 to 50 years. And I still wrestle over passages. And I, that doesn't bother me. My faith is big enough to try to handle those things. Right? Even Paul, I'm sorry, Peter... In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, get this, found some of Paul's letters difficult. <laughs> and Peter gave us a couple books himself. So there are some challenges in the Bible. There's some, it seems like, some surface contradictions and some moral challenges. Now, some of these can be explained by looking at parallel text or other scriptures. Others it can be explained by looking at the original language of Greek or Hebrew. Other times, it's a little bit more challenging. And that doesn't mean that we give up our high view of Scripture. It's just that we stay at the table. It just means that we stay in the study. That means that we See how other scholars over 2,000 years have wrestled with these passages and what does it mean in its original context and how does it apply to my life here in the Miami Valley today? We need to explain Scripture, not explain it away. You can tell the world here at Gingsburg, we believe in the Bible. We teach the Bible. The Bible is inspired it is God's word for us today. It's God breathed. I want to invite you to learn the Bible. I want to invite you to get involved in Bible study as we grow together. But what's the purpose of this book? The purpose of this book is to get you and me in a relationship with Jesus. Again, I repeat it. It's not a book of information, of head knowledge. It's a book of transformation. Let me give you an example. So Rachel and I, we've been for years, it really extends from her family. We've been a Volkswagen car family. We own three of them now, although I do have my Harley and a Ford truck. But, but we've had all these cars over the years. And, and it's just been part of her upbringing. And the one special car that we've had about 20 years is her Volkswagen Carmagia. We have a picture of it there. 
It's a 1971 restored Volkswagen Carmagia, and it's very special to her. There's a, there's a lot of history there with that car and her grandfather and all. And so you'll see that around the church from time to time. These guys over here, some of my friends from the past, they know it well. Some people call it Tweety Bird and other things like that. But let's say, for instance, and I, I don't drive it much because, to be honest, it's too small for me. But, uh, but let's say that I become a, a master of the manual of that car. And I decide I'm going to become an expert in Volkswagen Carmagias, and I'm going to really learn the manual. I'm going to study the manual. I'm going to memorize the manual. And I'm going to actually take the paragraphs of the manual, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to list numbers beside the lines so I can really know the, the chapters and verses of the manual. And anybody ever asks me about the manual, I'll just be the expert. And I like it so much, I begin to teach the manual to other Volkswagen enthusiasts. And I become actually an expert on the manual. In fact, I decided to put up a sign, we're going to have a Wednesday night manual study on Volkswagen cars. And I like it so much that you see on my Facebook, all you ever see is these you know, just these statements, these verses of the Volkswagen manual. And, and then even I get so inspired that, that I decided to cut some of the manual out and put them on my refrigerator. And I asked Chris Wingfield, hey, Chris, why don't you take some of these words of the manual? I really like this section here. Put it to music. And then when we're together on Wednesday night, we can all sing chorus to the manual. <laughs> I become so well-known in the manual. I write books on the manual. I'm on a speaking tour of the manual. And I decided to learn German so I can read the manual in the original language. <laughs> but friends, that's not the purpose of the manual. Amen? That's not the purpose. What's the purpose? To help me to understand the car so I can drive the car. That's the purpose of the manual. And the purpose of this book is not so you can be the smartest person in the room. The, pur the purpose of this book is to help you encounter God, to have a relationship with Jesus. That's the purpose of this book. Now, don't take my word for it. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, in teaching this in John chapter 5, said this. You search the scriptures because you think... They, mean the scriptures, give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Jesus is saying the whole purpose of this book is to get you into a relationship with me. Now, before we leave, and I'm almost through, some of you are glad. Here's the question. I could pick up that iPad. It's a scripture. I could pick up this. I'll pick up this. What are you going to do with this book? What are you? I mean you. What are you going to do with this book? We can talk about what the world thinks of this book. We can talk about what this celebrity thinks about this book. We can talk about. But I'm asking you. And I'm asking me. What are you going to do? Well, you can ignore it. It's the best-selling book of all time. It's the book that's been translated into more languages than any other book in human history. It's a book that Western civilization foundation has been built upon, but you can just ignore it if you want to. You can put it up on a shelf somewhere, collect dust, bring it out and put it on the coffee table, wipe it off when the pastor comes over. You can do that. 
What are you going to do? Then my question is going to be, if you abandon the teaching of this book, what are you going to replace your source of truth with? Your own opinion? Oh, Lord, help us. Help us from all of our opinions, including the preacher's. Another chicken soup book. (laughs) Another book for dummies. Is that what you're going to replace? Are you going to replace your source of truth, whatever the philosophy of a political pundit on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, God help us. Is that where you're going to find all of your truth for life? I want to invite you to consider the Bible. (laughs) It's based on good history. It's got a good foundation. It points us to the Lord of life, the Lord of love, the living word, Jesus Christ. When I was a small kid, we'll close with this. In first grade, in the children's choir, we used to sing a song. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I'll stand upon the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. If that's you, let's pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you for the gift of this day. How glad we are that you've written a book, an instruction manual for life, a book that teaches us how to love, how to build relationships, how to be a friend, how to treat our bodies, how to handle our money, how to raise our kids, how to plan for eternity. Thank you, Lord. We pray today that every single person in this place will make a decision right now to be a woman or man of the book, to read it, to receive teaching from it, to make decisions on the basis of what the book says to proclaim the information of this book to family and friends, especially to children. Lord, may we always be a church of the book, but more importantly than the written word, may we always find our hope in the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the one that we pray and for it's in Jesus that we pray, amen. I hope you enjoyed today's message. I've got two invitations for you before you go. First, subscribe to our podcast so it shows up in your feed every week. And if today's message inspired you and you would like more people to hear it, you can give a financial gift through the Gingosburg app or online at gingosburg.org.